This message by David Pallison is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries and is the second part of an evening entitled Praising God with the Psalmist. It was recorded during the fifth general session at our Worship God 2008 conference. In this second section, Dr. Pallison teaches on the imprecatory psalms and helps us understand the connection the psalmists make between the problem of evil and the glory of God. David edits the Journal of Biblical Counseling, counsels and teaches at the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and teaches practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. We've looked at physical expression. We've looked at engaging our minds. We've looked at dealing with our trials. And one more area we are going to look at, and that is the psalmist's concern for God's glory in the earth. And we see it evidenced in what are known as the imprecatory psalms. Psalms where the author is calling out for destruction of his enemies, for babies to be bashed against rocks, for the teeth to be torn out of his enemies. How do we apply those? How do we think of those? I thought, rather than try to explain that to you, I'd get someone much smarter than myself. So David is, David Pallison is going to come to share with us a few thoughts on how we might learn from these, and then we're going to apply what he shares with us. So David, would you come? Bob's chicken. <laughs> this, is, this is a really hard topic, but it is a great privilege to be able to seek, to attempt to deal with it. And I'm as- actually going to slightly change the way that Bob phrased it. We will get, at, you might say at the end of what I say, we get to the question about God's glory in the whole earth. But I, I want to f- actually copy the way that he f- phrased those first three in phrasing this one. What do we do with our bodies? What do we do with our minds? What do we do with our trials? And the issue that is in this one is what do you do with evil? That's the question. What do you do with evil? And it is a a complicated question. But I think that ultimately there are things that drive through the way you answer this question that are at the very absolute dead center of who our God is and what his purposes are and what it means to know him. First of all, we have got to say that the anger of God at evil is one of his excellencies. It's a wonderful article written over a hundred years ago by B.B. Warfield called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he looked at Jesus, and he didn't, he didn't pick the... Uh, I wish he had looked at the Psalms also, but he stuck to the Gospels, and that was rich as enough. Here's a couple of statements he says about it. It would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met with in his journey through human life 
as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. That is very important, and it is true. There's a, the, the, there is a combination of justice and mercy that go together, and they can never be taken apart. And so it's actually out of, you might say, Jesus' outrage at evil and his tenderness towards suffering, miserable humanity. As Warfield says, it's out of those two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. Now, Bob has tasked me to talk about what we do with these imprecatory psalms. And what I'm going to do is actually seek to frame the whole way you think about that and then seek to push us to some applications on this. And let me start this way. This issue of what do you do with the, the, the calling down of God's judgment, what, this issue is a whole lot easier to understand if you see yourself as standing inside the problem of evil, as a participant in the problem of evil, rather than seeing yourself as outside the problem of evil. And there's two things that really goof up the imprecatory Psalms. One is where someone takes the stance, I am the righteous. And those people, those bad people over there, or those people that don't do what I like, or those people who aren't part of my group or my nationality, those are the bad people, and I'm perfectly content to have God's wrath be on them, but I'm the good. And they're the people that make the kind of hellfire and damnation, sort of the stance of we are the righteous, and and God will smoke all those bad people over there. That's standing outside the problem of evil rather than as a participant. The other, the other way of doing that, where someone stands outside, is by essentially saying, you know, I'm just too nice and kind a human being to go for all that sort of primitive, unchristian venting of violent emotion. And you get a kind of, in many, the ways many people treat the, the, the imprecatory psalms, a kind of mincing, embarrassed, sort of, well, I kind of wish that wasn't in my Bible, but the people who love the Bible basically will sort of apologize for it. Uh, the people that are free to criticize the Bible will reject it as kind of primitive, barbaric, unchristian sentiments. Either way, whether you're sort of too refined and elevated and nice, or whether you're too self-righteous, you're putting yourself outside the problem of evil. And the fact is, You cannot understand the imprecatory psalms unless you stand inside the problem. You are part of the problem. And they start to make sense. Now, let me... I am convinced that that the, the smoke and fog around the imprecatory psalms comes because they are wrenched out of their context. Right? And in a way, Bob did that to set the stage. You know, let me just quote the the worst, most mean-spirited sounding thing, and everybody either, you know, whatever people do with that. The fact is, the only way to really understand what's going on there, you must read the whole context. You must read the whole psalm. You must understand that psalm and what's going on in other parts of Scripture. When you read it in context, it makes sense. 
And it is a sense that gets to the very heart of our faith. I want to lay out six things about context. The first is a basic definitional matter. What is an imprecation? It's rather, it's kind of a, it's a big word and it's a funny word. It's kind of a ominous sounding word. But this is all an imprecation is. God has promised that he will destroy evil. Psalm 1 sets the whole Psalter. The way of the wicked will perish. God has promised, he has staked his very holy character, his very goodness, that those that abuse and wrong and hurt and kill and betray and lie and maim and are cruel and predatory, he hates. Those that defame his name, who breathe lies, however sweet sounding, he hates evil and he will destroy evil. That's God's promise. And so all an imprecation really is, is is simply a plea for God to destroy evil. Make right all that is so wrong. And that plea that this world would be made right, that all that is wrong would be removed, is at the center of our hope as Christian people, the hope of the Bible, that God would act on what he has promised to do. That's point one. Point two. Who are the people that the imprecation, the plea that they would be destroyed, who are they? And again, this is one of the things that it's so often discussions of this, this doesn't get mentioned. But the the Psalms that speak this way are very explicit what kind of a person, what kind of a being is talked about. You look at some of the most uh, intense, uh, Psalm 109, 109 and 69 are probably the two most extended. In Psalm 109, what you see is a picture of someone who is a liar, a deceiver, an accuser, a killer, a predator, who is a betrayer and malicious. And the word accuser, accuser, accuser. It actually gets used three times. Killer, murderer, liar, accuser, deceiver, destroyer. It's very interesting that when you look at the, you know, you you hear the impact of who the curses are being called on. There is a face that presses through, and it is the face of Satan. It is the face of the evil one who is the liar and murderer. That is all over the imprecatory Psalms. And I'm convinced that one of the ways that we, in the fullness of time, the fullness of God's revelation, understand the imprecatory, one one of the pieces of understanding it is is realizing a, a passage such as, we do not fight with flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of wickedness. And there are things that you might say in the Old Testament, they're revealed one way, but that very revelation it's like there's a deeper reality pressing through it. And, you, and, you, and we are driven to see what we are talking about here is the face and image of the pit. Now, Satan has children, right? John 8, you know, you are in the image of your father who was a liar and murderer from the beginning. And so it's, it's, there's no doubt that human beings fulfill that image. And uh, that's... That's going to be part of it. But I think it's very important to see that what's being talked about is barefaced, 
No pretense of civility, evil. The, the embodiment of the lie. Third, third comment in context. Who is it that is praying? Again, so important. We just read the story. Who is praying? The person that is praying is described these ways. Victim, sufferer, the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the despairing, the one who's in pain, the innocent, the one who has done good, who has loved his enemies, and they have returned evil for my good. The one who is God-reliant. It is a picture, you might say, uh, just as the picture of the one to whom curse is prayed is a picture of incarnate, embodied evil. The picture of the one who prays is the picture of all purity and goodness and love for enemy. It is essentially a picture of Christ. This is one of the ways, again, this picture that presses through the Psalms. We made the comment this morning that there is a sense in which, yes, the Psalms are ours, but the Psalms in their sort of original Old Testament version are in a fundamental sense for Christ. And what you see in the imprecatory Psalms is Christ, ultimately, and Christ's enemies, the one who hates him, who would kill him, who would lie about him. That is, it's so crucial to see because it explains, for example, as you continue to look in the, in each of these Psalms, they aren't just these sort of vindictive cursing, I'm all upset, these people are jerks, I want to blow them off. They are Psalms that include things like, oh Lord, save me, help me, I cry to you, deliver me, show your steadfast love and faithfulness to me, right? I mean, that's what we've just been saying. The steadfast love and faithfulness of God to the innocent sufferer is that God would deliver from the hand of the evil liar and killer and accuser by destroying the, the evil that is there, right? And so it's, and you see, you see pictures of this all through the Bible. For example, uh, the, there's a, uh, you think about how the wonderful story of God's steadfast love and that he saves Israel out of Egypt. How does he do it? He destroys Egypt, right? He destroys Pharaoh. He ruins the, the, those who serve idolatrous gods. That's how he saves. When you look at the Psalms of Refuge, how does God protect you when you take refuge in him from your enemies? By destroying your enemies. And it's one of those things that it's just so... When you start to read these Psalms in context, you see they, they seem so peculiar until you realize what's going on. Psalms like Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, they're Psalms of passionate calling out for refuge and protection and God's aid and his steadfast love... And they involve the destruction of enemies. You know, it, it goes together. Uh, it's a picture of his steadfast love. One of the things that I think is, has sadly, really probably for centuries, hurt the church in coming to grips with understanding this is the way that the wrath of God is preached. Usually the wrath of God is preached in a way to make you squirm. Right? It's a warning. You better repent or else, you know, hellfire is coming. And that is there. But that's not all that's there. In fact, I'd, uh, it's, it's almost 50-50 when you really look at it. The other half of the wrath of God is the wrath of God is presented as your hope. Your hope. 
Think of Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. See, see, the wrath of God is not being talked about there as something you should be afraid of. It's talked about something that you put your hope in. And it's actually something you put your hope in which will then free you from the impulse to vengeance, bitterness, hatred, and will actually free you to love your enemy, which is what Romans 12 is saying there. Amazing, right? Psalm 9 is the same. You know, in Psalm 9, it is... or Psalm 10, I mean, you, you, you can read the article I wrote on that, which will unpack this in some greater detail. But in a nutshell, Psalm 10 is this chilling psalm where a predator is out to get me. And it is, it is hair-raising. And the very last line is one of the most, uh, it's, a, it's a unique line in, in the entirety of the Bible. And it's this, it's this glad cry that says, that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. And it's a cry of, the deli- of deliverance. Now, what does it mean that man who is of the earth will cause terror no more? It is because God will destroy the terrorizers. It, it's your hope there. Jeremiah 20, verse 13 is a very interesting passage. It, it, wrap, wrap, wrap around this. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the, from the hand of evildoers. Sounds like a great... How has he done it? He has done it by destroying the evildoers. Praise God that evil has been defeated. So that, that's, the, that's the third point, is who is the sufferer? The sufferer is ultimately the innocent victim, the Lord Christ, and in, in a certain, then in an extended sense, us. But then fourth, again, read in context. Read in context. Read the whole psalm. What's going on in the psalm? Fourth, everything we've said so far creates a fierce dilemma because the psalmist is keenly conscious that I am part of the problem of evil. Now, we're a long ways from some kind of vindictive, you know, off my enemies sorts of things. This, this, it creates this incredible tension in the Psalms. Now, this is perhaps, we could go lots of places, but Psalm 69 is one of the two most imprecatory of the Psalms. And listen to one of the things that's in this Psalm. Oh God, you know my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. In other words, I'm liable to judgment because I'm evil. The way of the evil perishes, the soul that sins will die. You know my wrongs. They aren't hidden from you. And then verse 6 is actually one of these, it's one of the most wonderful verses, in a sense, for kind of a different way of praying about your besetting sins. Oh, Lord, do not let those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Oh, Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Because he knows what he's like. He knows that he's part of the problem of evil. He, he's conscious of, that, of that, that, that the issue of evil is about me. And so the issue of who, should be, who is the wicked, it points a finger at me. I deserve death. I deserve the imprecations, except for the grace of God, if that grace is, is, would be for me. It, uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
our essential natures unto evil. That is part of the consciousness of the psalmist. And you start to see here, you know, this is not some simple thing about, well, I'm the righteous and I'll ask God to off the guys I don't like, right? This is a man wrestling with the problem of evil and he knows he's part of it. And then it keeps pushing. Okay, here's point five in all this. And this is the basis. This is a different, you know, I start out with what's the basis of an imprecation it's that God is just. He will destroy. The way of the, the, way of the wicked will perish. Well, let's, here's, let's amp it up even more. This is Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8. It is God who is judge. He brings one down and he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine, well mixed. He pours it out. And all the wicked... Of the earth, drink it down to its very dregs. There's a cup of wrath in the hand of God that the wicked will drink to the very dregs. This is the cup that Jesus drinks. He drinks the cup of the wicked. I am overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This is the cup he's talking about, right? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's at the point of death because he is drinking the cup of the cup of malediction, the cup of of uh, execration, the cup of destruction. Right? He's he's drinking the cup of imprecation that is to fall upon the wicked, and it is no accident that right in the same context, that's Matthew 26, that there is another cup, and it is the cup of mercy. And you look at, and this, these are again the words of Jesus. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And what you, and what you see there then is that one of the things that then unfolds in the subsequent events is that Jesus looks at his enemies and he says from the cross, Father, forgive them. And he dies for them. And he drinks their cup. And you put this together with other things. I mean, Romans 5, for example. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he said, Father, forgive them. And it, it leads to this, this very unusual, what do you do with evil, right? And what you do with evil is something that call, will call you to grow up in your faith in a way like nothing else. Because just, just take, for example, Romans 12. You are called to lay aside all vengeance. Never avenge yourself. You are called to love your enemies. 
You are also called in the exact same chapter to hate what is evil and to love what is good. Can you do both of those things? Can you hate what is evil and love your enemy? And the fact is that you can. And it's not, you know, I mean, there's some good intentions in the, you know, love the sin or hate the sin quote. It's, it's rather a cheap way to try capture this. The reality is far deeper. You are called to hate what is evil. And it is people who are included in what does evil, right? And you are called to love your enemies. How can you do this? Well, it's nothing less, actually. This, and this is why I, I'm, I'm glad Bob put this last tonight. Because there's a way where um, this is bigger than our trials. This is bigger than our trials. How you deal with evil is bigger. Because you are being called to nothing less than that you would become like in fundamental character, the living God himself. One of the three or four most central revelations of God is on Mount Sinai, Exodus 34. And what he says uh, there, the Lord, you know the story, the Lord passes before Moses. It's one of the, it's one of the, it's, it's the revelation of God kind of, open and he says this the lord the lord god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty now What you see in that is this combination of absolute justice. He hates what is evil. Impenitent iniquity, he will destroy. And he forgives sins. And he is merciful, gracious, compassionate. Now, that's wonder enough. But let me me put one more into your heart. The Bible distinguishes between those aspects of God that are incommunicable, things that he alone has that we don't, right? Psalm 33, he is the, you know, those are incommunicable attributes. You will never create out of nothing. You will never judge and rule and sustain the whole earth. You will never be the author of salvation. God alone does that. But then there are other aspects of who God is that he is committed to make you like him. And you know what? Everything that's said in Exodus 34 is a communicable attribute. Think about that. That God intends that you would be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, actually, the the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness, except for the Psalms, where it's put it to the God, it's used just as often for how people treat people as how God treats people. You are called to show that. It's a quality of care, commitment, intensity, kindness, long haul. You are called to be someone who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet who by no means clears the guilty. 
the impenitent. In other words, you are called both to love your enemies and to hate what is evil. And that is the goal of our sanctification. It's that we would be conformed to the image of this God. And he would make you and the person sitting next to you and me and his people like him in this quality of how we engage evil. Now, I I don't know fully how how does this affect the way we worship. And I'll take a very few stabs in there. But I think one of the ways that it it reflects that the imprecatory psalms, you might say, play a part, all that we've talked about here, this entire context, is that there's got to be a way in, in the way we pray, sing, talk, that we are able to say at the same time, I'll put it in a prayer example, Father, what that man did is evil. It is horrible. It is wrong. And I plead with you that you will destroy evil and you will heal and protect and restore the broken and the victimized. And Father, if it would be your will, forgive your enemy. Forgive that person. Do not hold this sin against him. Lord, you did not hold my sin against me when I was your enemy. And this heinous thing that has happened, it would be to your glory if you would forgive and transform that person. And Lord, if you're not going to do that, please take him out of circulation. Remove him. Destroy him. Don't let evil run the earth. And Lord, come back. You know, there's, a, there's actually a sense, and I'll, I'll close with this. There, there is a sense where we actually already, all, Christians of all stripes, actually, in all sorts of ways, pray and sing the imprecatory psalms all the time. Because it is at the center of any kind of profession of Christian faith that we pray and sing that God will destroy evil. He will deliver us from all that is wrong. He will right all wrongs. He will remove all causes of hurt and stumbling and lie and abuse and victimization, destruction. In fact, that he will throw death itself into the, into the lake of fire. Death, thou shalt die. Death itself will be destroyed. He will destroy all enemies. And there are things just central to Christian faith, like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a very short prayer. It has seven requests. And you know what? The way I read the Lord's Prayer, five of those seven requests have implicit in them the thrust of the imprecatory psalms, the destruction of evil. Five of the seven requests in the Lord's Prayer. Because hallowed be your name, says, Lord, will you remove from this earth all that is unhallowed, all that is profaning you, all that is ugly and corrupt and evil and dark? All that blasphemes you, all that is a lie about you, may your name be hallowed, which means the destruction of all unhallowing. It says your kingdom come, and the coming of his kingdom means the destruction of every other pretend kingdom in the world, right? Your will be done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. In heaven you speak, the angels jump, they're your servants. On earth 
There's a lot of contrary wills. The coming of the will of God on earth will destroy every contrary will. Do not lead us into temptation. How does he, how, what does that look like? Well, it comes by the destruction of the sources of temptation. And there are two sources of temptation. One is suffering and the other is lies, right? It's kind of two vectors of temptation. Suffering and lies, the two, two aspects of evil that hit us do not lead us into temptation. Destroy the sources of temptation. And then the clincher, the final line, deliver us from evil. So the imprecatory, the, the lot, the, this profound logic of the imprecatory Psalms that evil would be destroyed is at the center of our hope. One final thing. just about the last line of the Bible. And there are many songs that we sing that, you know, every song we sing about victory, about the kingdom, about, you know, these are all have an imprecation, you might say, and a plea that God will make all the wrongs right, destroy what's wrong. Towards right at the end of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. That is a plea for the Jesus of Revelation to come. And the Jesus of the book of Revelation cleanses the earth, and he removes all sources of hurt and all sources of death and all sources of lie and all sources of evil. And it is at this, you know, it's this, there's this tension here where we who ourselves deserve the curses. Jesus drank the cup of death that the wicked drink to the dregs and then sends us out as these ambassadors to be in his image, right? to hate evil with all our hearts and to love our enemies with all our hearts. And, the, and you hold the two together because God holds the two together. Why don't we pray together? Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May everything that profanes you and hates you and doesn't even want to think about you, says lies about G-O-D, would you fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as water fills the sea and all that is profane be removed? And that is our prayer, Lord, both for the cleansing of the earth and for the bringing in of all nations that you would mercifully draw countless men, women, children, from darkness into light. We pray that your kingdom will come, that all false kingdoms, whether they are the little petty ones we each set up or organized kingdoms of hostility and false teaching and lies, that you would destroy all false powers. We pray that your will would be done and that this would become a world in which men and women and children love you and consider the interest of neighbors and don't lie to each other and don't betray each other and are filled with steadfast love and faithfulness and are slow to anger, compassionate, forgiving. Make your will done. We pray that you would not lead us into temptation, that you would bring the day when we are delivered from all suffering and the many temptations to discouragement or fear or despair or bitterness that suffering brings and the many temptations to believe lies and get seduced by 
false pleasures or false uh, offers that the world makes. Deliver us from temptation. Make this a world in which there is no cause of stumbling anywhere in it. And deliver us from evil. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's stand together. In the end, it is about the glory of God over the earth and all creation. That's why we worship Him, because He alone is worthy of all the glory. And we do pray and live for His kingdom coming, evil being destroyed. And we sing with the joy and confidence of those who have been saved by the one who drank the cup of wrath for us. And what a joy it is to not only sing to Him, but to be His ambassadors. Those who proclaim the great news of His salvation and His Lordship. Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. You've been listening to a message by David Pallison, which was given at our Worship God 2008 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.